Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our Friday series with James Jordan on the topic of the temptations of Christ. And here again, like last week, he's going to be taking a step back and looking at the topic of temptation in general. Do take a moment to check out those show notes, specifically the link to our YouTube channel, where right now we are in the midst of a series on a biblical theology of music with Peter Lightheart. And we also have previous series on how to read the Bible, the Tabernacle, the Sermon on the Mount, and we have a series coming out soon on baptism. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing temptation in our Biblical Worldview series. The Temptations of Christ, and in order to get a better perspective on that, we've gone back to look at the temptations that are presented to man in the book of Genesis, and particularly the temptation of Adam and Eve last week. This week we'll watch... Uh, certain recapitulations of that temptation, particularly as they came to Ham, Abraham, and to Joseph, then I think we'll be in a much better position to go back to Matthew chapter 4 and look again at the temptations of Christ. We saw last time that when God created the world, which we called Eretz, It's an ordered, structured environment. He created it as a covenantal order with man as the guardian and ruler of that order, particularly in the Garden of Eden, and by extension, eventually, man would become the guardian and shepherd of the entire world. He would have two staffs, a rod of judgment and a shepherd's staff, one of king and one of priest. And we saw that God instituted a program of bringing man to wisdom and maturity in this task. And first of all, he brought the animals to Adam so that Adam would learn that he needed a helper to help him with his kingly task of shepherding the world. And then God bestowed that helper upon him. And then he brought an animal to Adam to teach Adam that he needed some type of office or power in order to guard the world. And at that point, Adam decided that he was going to take on the responsibility of guarding for himself and not wait for God to bestow the robe of office upon him. Now, there's more involved here than just a robe of judicial office. That's what we focused on last time. But we can expand that to include all the honors and privileges of maturity which people try to get without waiting for maturity to come. We have an order in Genesis, which is that God creates man, gives him work to do, and as he works, God will bestow upon him status, or honor, or privilege, or dominion, or judicial authority, or anything that the Bible speaks of in terms of having a robe, being invested with a garment, which is a sign of that honor. And there is a distinction between we even have it today, between the way we clothe our children and the way we expect adults to look, or between the kinds of garments that people wear in various positions in life. So we even, even today, as corrupt as our thinking is along these lines, we still have some shadows of this teaching. Now, the fall of man consisted in his grabbing for this robe of office and taking it upon himself. And we saw that when man 
grab for that position, grab for the honors and privileges of maturity without having maturity, then instantly he felt naked. Adam and Eve were naked. Why? Because they were sinless? No, because they were babies. They hadn't yet come to the point of having clothing upon them. They were born naked, just like children are. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as you're a baby. But there's something ridiculous about it if we have a five-year-old child who claims to be the king of the world. In this case, about a five-hour-old child claiming to be the king of the world and refusing to wait until he's gotten the requisite wisdom. So, having grabbed for this power and authority, man suddenly feels naked and robes himself. Now, that robe has to be maintained. God comes and says, look, you've made yourself a god. You have made yourself even more in my image than you started out. You started out in my moral image, and now you want to be in my judicial image as well without waiting for it. So you exercise judgment. Judge yourself. What have you done? Of course, man judges wrongly. And so God casts him out and appoints cherubim to guard the garden because man has failed to guard it. Now, there are certain things that we could say just looking around society and looking around even in our own church and looking at ourselves that illustrate this type of sin, seizing for things that we're not ready for. It's one of the basic problems that men face in all times. I'm going to try to get fairly specific this morning without wanting to offend anybody in particular, but these are all things that, that I've had to wrestle with, and I think that various of us have, and I think it's worth talking about. We could just take some illustrations of man's tendency to seize honor and power and glory and authority before he's ready for it. One is the way... Now, this is in the academic world. The Ph.D. functions in our society. A man goes to college and he grabs, works very hard and gets himself a Ph.D. early in life. Now, you might think, well, he needs a Ph.D. as a tool so that he can grow and mature in terms of his work. Not really. In the American system, the Ph.D. is honorific more than anything else. If a man has the money to stay in school and he has the endurance to put up with the hassle, then he can get a Ph.D. It's not really a sign of anything more than endurance. It has more of an honorific than a practical status. Now, I grew up in a home where my father had a Ph.D. and my mother had an M.A. And when we had people over to our house, without exception, they had Ph.D.s. When my mother would have a party, a bridge party, everybody who came, all the men, had Ph.D.s. So I'm used to PhDs, and I know that PhD doesn't mean much of anything. But people who aren't used to them are real impressed by PhDs. And actually, a PhD is not a sign that you've attained very much. In the academic world, actually going from being an assistant professor to an associate professor to a full professor is much more of a sign that you've endured and come to some type of a position of honor. That's not to despise people who have PhDs. It's just to say there's no particular honor that ought to go along with it. And yet, for I would say the majority of people who go off and try to get these advanced degrees, they do so in the interest of getting honor for themselves. Instead of working and letting honor come, they go and try to get it. And they do get a certain amount of status. But they also 
have to maintain it with fig leaves. Self-image is another area we could talk about. In our time, self-image seems to be very, very important. We have an entire religion of psychology which is based on helping people maintain their self-image. People take on an image very early in life instead of letting one develop. So a man comes and says, I'm a bricklayer. Why aren't you laying bricks? Well, I can't find any work as a bricklayer. Well, why don't you go get a job at 7-Eleven? Oh, no, that doesn't square with my self-image. I'm a bricklayer. So I'm just going to sit around and wait till I get some job as a bricklayer. What that involves is a basic demand on God. God, you must provide me work as a bricklayer that suits my self-image. I've decided I'm a bricklayer. If I can't get job as a bricklayer, I'm just going to sit at home and wait until I get one. Now, you find that attitude in a lot of people, and I think we tend to find it in ourselves. I won't just go get a job. I'm going to get a job that fits my self-image. Well, that's at the wrong end of life, see? God calls on men to work in the situation and the honor and the self-image and the glory and the status and all these other things that people want to start off with will come. Clothing is another example. I'm just trying to get some examples out before us that will help us to refresh our memories on what we said last week. Clothing. Historically, clothing represents a role or a status in life. Nowadays, uh, clothing's kind of a game. People dress like cowboys in this town who've never ridden a horse. If they all seem to want to, I mean, not all, but a lot of people seem to want to dress like cowboys. And then they dress like this or they dress like that. It's more. It's almost a matter of wearing costumes than it is dressing in terms of any role or status. Now, with our modern money and our modern ability to produce clothing, you can buy anything to wear. See? So you can really dress any way you want, and you can pretend to a variety of artificial roles. One day, you can be paramilitary. The next day, you can be a cowboy. The next day, you can, I mean, you can really do all kinds of different things with clothing, see. There's no limitation. Now, this has been a problem in the past. You may not be aware of it, but it was a big problem in Puritan New England. They kept passing laws called sumptuary laws to try to control how people dress because what happened was the poorer people in New England began to make a lot of money and they wanted to dress like the wealthier people. And uh, it was regarded as unseemly for a poor woman, a woman from a lower class, to get a dress with a frill on it. She was supposed to wear, you know, homespun and not wear linen with a frill on it. Only upper class people were supposed to wear that. So the Puritans actually passed laws saying that poorer people were not allowed to buy that type of garment or material. Well, they weren't able to enforce these laws. Puritans had gone and eliminated the role dress, the role of dress in the church, and they were certainly unable to maintain it in society. Now again, and I, I want to make this point over and over again, we can't judge other people here because we're talking about motivations. I want to make that clear. Don't look around the church and try to judge other people in terms of anything that I'm saying because we're talking about motivations. Adam's motive in grabbing for privilege. Your motive, if you try to do the same kind of thing. 
And I want to point out several different ways in which we do this. And if one fits you, then let it fit you. But don't go looking at somebody else because people may have different motives for doing the same kinds of outside things. So this is not said to judge anybody but, but you and me individually. But there is a sense in which clothing has to do with role or status, and even though it's strangely askew in our society and we shouldn't be trying to pass laws to change all that, at the same time a clothing externalizes a man's self-image. And if a man takes on clothing of a certain kind, then he has to live up to it. And if he can't live up to it, then he has to force it on other people. That's what the fig leaves do. People are going to grant me my status whether I deserve it or not. Then you have to enforce that somehow. And that's what the Puritans tried to do and failed to do. We tried to enforce the status of the aristocracy instead of letting it come out naturally as a result of wisdom and maturity. I only say that so you can look at yourself and see how you dress. Are you dressing beyond where you ought to be in this part of life? And I don't mean dressing for church. We should all dress well to come into God's presence. But I'm talking about something a little bit more subtle, and I hope you catch it. I'll give you a fourth example. Today in the church, everybody is a theologian. Everybody's an intellectual. We've seen this in the church here recently. Just about every single person that has left this church has left it after telling the elders here all about theology. All of these people know everything. They come into the session meeting and they start dictating what the rules are. Now, there's a sense in which all Christians have the general office of all believers. Even my six-year-old has it, but he doesn't know very much theology yet. My boys argue whether God or the Lord is supreme. The God, God tells the Lord what to do. No, the Lord tells God what to do. No, the Lord and God are the same. Now, I don't think they're ready to uh, come into the session and tell the session how to rule a church. But believe me, there sure used to be a lot of people around here who knew more than everybody else. Now, you may not like me saying that because the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers means that even if you've never read the book of Haggai, you know just as much as everybody else. That's not true. And we need somehow to be able to deal with that. Everybody's not a theologian in the church. People learn a little bit of theology and they think they have a lot of answers. Let me ask you a theological question. How was it that Jesus Christ was born into the world? What made that possible? How come, you know, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, God said, in the day you eat of it, you will die. Now, they did die in a sense. And one of the ways in which the Bible says that they're dead is that the woman cannot conceive, and when she does conceive, the child in the womb is dead. So it takes some type of a miracle for all these barren women like the wife of Abraham and the wife of Isaac and the wife of Jacob and the mother of Samson and the mother of Samuel and the mother of John the Baptist and the mother of Jesus Christ. All of them had dead wombs and something had to be done to open up the womb. And the Bible tells us that it's resurrection. It's only on the basis of the resurrection of Christ that the womb can be opened up so a baby can be born. And it's only on the basis of the resurrection of Christ 
that the baby can be circumcised and brought out of death to life. Now, how did Jesus get born then? Well, Jesus got born on the basis of his own death and resurrection. But in order to die and be resurrected, he had to be born, right? So the basis of Jesus' birth is his death. But the basis of his death is his birth. You see, he's got to be born before he can die, but actually he's got to die before he can be born. Because only on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection can anybody be born into the world, including Christ. So how does the virgin womb conceive and give birth to a child who isn't dead on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection? Now, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Logically. That's a good theological question. I don't have the answer to it. I mean, covenantally it's true, and we don't need to worry about it. But believe me, there are issues in theology that we could kind of go on and on about that I don't know the answer to. Everybody's not a theologian. You can raise questions in this church. It's fine to come and raise questions. If you have, if you see something that you don't agree with or something that you're curious about, that's one thing. But when you pass judgment or dictate, it's a different matter. It's not a matter of putting people down. It's just a matter of reality. See, we're not all the same. We're not all equally mature in every area. Imagine what would happen if you brought your car to me to be fixed. Well, try not to imagine it. You wouldn't have a car left if I took it apart. I'd be dead, too, because it, it, see, the car would reach out and chew me up. First, some machine in there would grab my hand, and it would pull me in and turn me into hamburger. That's why I never touch cars, because when I look at them, that's what it looks to me like they're going to do if I get near to it. So I never get near to an engine of any kind, because I don't want to get swallowed up and chewed into hamburger. Somebody else can have dominion over that. Now, see, there's just differences here. And you can't, if a man assumes a role that he's not ready for, then he's, he gets embarrassed at some point, his nakedness is exposed. Or else he has to maintain it by trying to force it on everybody else. Well, you will honor me. I know, uh, well, I refuse to face the fact that I'm not ready to do this, and you will honor me. Honor has to come. You can't seize it. Honor, glory, all kinds of things. Another example. This is one that we all tend to fall into. We like to borrow money to live like people who have earned it for years. Don't want to wait till we're 50 to have a nice house. Got to have it now. We want to live like people live on TV. Well, nobody lives like people live on TV, see. That's make-believe, TV. Remember, TV is make-believe. Right? Right. Or we want to eat good food, see, so we kind of live beyond our means to eat good food. Tired of having beans at night. Well, beans do get old, although you can make beans taste pretty good, beans and hamburger. You've got to be careful here. Borrowing money is one of the problems that comes exactly at this point, a lack of patience. And I'm not saying that you can't borrow money to buy a house because a house is a necessity, but you've got to be real careful with this borrowing money stuff because the temptation there is to want to live like people live who are at the end of life. 
after you have worked and earned and saved and grown and matured and gotten everything and extended your dominion out, then you have all these nice things. But we want to have them when we're 25 or 30. So we go out and borrow a whole bunch of money to get these things. That's a dangerous thing. You must weigh your own conscience on it. I can't. I can't look at somebody else and say they should or should not have done this, that, and the other. But this is something you have to be careful of. Because the rule is that glory and honor come to a person they're not grabbed for. The Bible says in Romans 2 to pursue glory and honor, but the means for pursuing it is obedience and work. The rewards are bestowed. They can't be grasped. Now, see, we can't judge other people here. We're talking about motives. I mean, suppose Joseph's brothers had judged him as they did. Well, this guy is only 17 years old, and he's already got this robe of authority, and he's in charge of everybody out here, and he reports back to the father. Of course, when they threw Joseph in the pit, what did they do? first thing they did was take the robe off and tear it up. That's what they didn't like. So we've got to be careful about judging other people. Actually, Joseph deserved that robe, even though he was 17. But we need to judge ourselves. How important to you is your self-image or your status? If it's interfering with your work, then it's premature. Now, the other thing we saw, and I'm going to go back to the text now. I managed to get through that without being stoned. Um, go back to talk about what happened at the end of Genesis 3. God robed man in skins. Now, partly that was to show that man is like a beast. And later on in the Bible... Wicked men who grab at authority and try to enforce their will on the world to cover up their nakedness are called beasts. And so robing a man with skins is to say that he's a beast. Later on, when Esau is born, <clears throat> Esau is likened to a beast. He comes out all red and hairy. Now, that's not to say that those of you who have more hair than the rest of us on your chest are more animalistic than we are, but in the book of Genesis, that's symbolic. And Esau, being born all covered with hair and red, and then drinking what he thinks is blood soup. Uh, give me have some of that red stuff, he says. That red stuff. It's lentils, but he thinks it's blood. And he's not a man who keeps the law. Esau is like an animal. And uh, he's likened to an animal in a number of different ways in the uh, text itself. So robing with skins is to say to Adam, you wanted to become a god but you have become an animal in your attempt. You become more like a beast than <clears throat> like the God that you were supposed to be. God with a little g. Remember Psalm 82, those who are rulers are gods. They are, they've moved from having the moral image of God to having his judicial image. So I don't think, the other thing that we can see in the, the uh, robing of Adam and Eve <clears throat> is a promise that someday the robe would be given on the basis of a blood sacrifice. There's no contradiction between these two things. But Adam and Eve are not robed with office. There is only a promise of it. And it's not until we get to Noah that we get a man who is actually given the robe of judicial office, who is actually given any type of honor and glory. But before we get there, we have to trace out what's happened now that man has seized the robe of honor and glory, the robe particularly of judicial dominion. This was the temptation. Make yourself a judge before you have anything to judge. Set yourself up and set your own course rather than following God's course and then at the end becoming a judge and passing judgment. 
grab for it on the first day instead of being waiting for it to be stowed on you, to be bestowed on you on the seventh day. Now we come to Cain. And in Genesis chapter 4, we really have kind of a recapitulation of the fall. Cain is born and so is Abel. And the time comes when Cain and Abel both bring sacrifices to the Lord. And Abel brings a, an animal sacrifice, and the shedding of blood is his self-judgment. He judges himself, and he judges righteously. And when he kills the animal, he's saying, I'm guilty, and I deserve to go to hell, and I can't bring anything in my hand. So there's a sense in which Abel brings a proper judgment against himself, but Cain does not. Cain just brings a bribe to try to bribe God and maintain his status. Now, Cain is tremendously humiliated because God doesn't honor his status. God humiliates him. God accepts, probably by sending fire out to consume the sacrifice, God accepts Abel's sacrifice and doesn't accept Cain's. Now, Cain is the crown prince of the entire world, the firstborn of the only family on the earth. And Cain is very humiliated by all of this. And so it says that Cain's countenance fell. That is, his face was down. Uh, when I have to rebuke my children, one of, them, one of them, his face goes like this, and he starts to cry and runs out of the room. His, his whole face collapses into this mask. The other one doesn't cry. He looks down like this. Looks down at the floor and he walks real slow around the room, looking down. If you grab him under the chin or try to pull him up, he uses all of his muscles to keep his face looking down. Now, there are a variety of ways in which the countenance falls when it's rebuked, but it's always because of one thing. There's an exposure of nakedness involved here. Cain's tried to maintain himself on his own terms, and now his nakedness is exposed. <clears throat> And God says, look, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire for you is, its desire is for you, but you must master it. So God gives advice to Cain, but Cain, in order to maintain his status, goes out and kills Abel. And Abel's blood goes into the ground, and the ground begins to call up for the destruction of Cain. Because when the ground is defiled, the ground calls forth the avenger of blood. And so, Cain finds that everywhere he goes, the ground is trying to spit him off. And Cain is afraid that the avenger is going to track him down. And so God says to Cain, I will protect you. I'll be a city of refuge for you if you'll trust in me. I'll put a mark on you, and I will protect you from the avenger. Now, what this means is, later on in the Bible, if a man killed his brother... If a man killed another human being, the avenger would track him down and kill him unless he got to the city of refuge. Why doesn't it happen here? The reason it doesn't happen here is that the robe of judicial office has not yet been given to the righteous. They cannot exercise capital punishment. There is no capital punishment before the flood, no proper capital punishment among the Sethites. They aren't given it. It's not till you get to Noah that you get this robe being given. What the saints have to do between the fall and the flood is be patient and wait. They have to keep confessing that they're naked. See, that's what essentially what the sacrifice does. When Abel brings it, he says, I don't have any power and authority. 
I am naked before you, and I am waiting for you to exalt me. I humble myself, and I look for you to exalt me. That's what Abel says. And for 1,657 years, you wait, and God keeps saying, wait and wait and wait. And meanwhile, Cain refuses God's city of refuge and goes out and makes his own city, which he calls Enoch. And because the ground keeps trying to spit him off, Cain has to ram his city into the ground and maintain it by force. And then anybody who comes into Cain's city that Cain doesn't like, Cain can kill him. And this goes on for seven generations until we get to Lamech, and Lamech writes a song about how glorious it is to avenge himself. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold, and Lamech rejoices in killing people. Now that's what's going on in the world before the flood. The righteous don't exercise any type of capital punishment to restrain evil, and they don't have any judicial authority. They simply have to confess their sin. But Cain and his line have ripped the robe and taken it upon themselves, uh, uh, seized the robe, rather, and taken it upon themselves, and they are exercising this type of dominion wrongly. And they put the righteous to death. So things were pretty bad before the flood. As a matter of fact, things mature to the point where God has to destroy the world. The sinfulness of man's youth becomes the sinfulness of his old age, and there's no restraint. And so the time comes for God to destroy the world, which he does in the flood. And in the flood, he decreates the Eretz, that covenantal order that God made in Genesis 1. He decreates it all the way back to the first verse, second verse, where the earth is without form and void and dark. He doesn't make it dark, but he does make it without form and void. All the separations, covenantal separations that God set up in the beginning, he set up three of them and two of them are undone. The firmament which separates the waters above and the waters below is removed and the waters collapse together. And the distinction between the land and the sea is removed and these two things merge together. And everything goes back to where it was when God made the world and then he recreates it. If you, you get, I think, the Genesis papers, uh, you'll read in the current one uh, how all this happened. And so I won't take the time to go into it here. It's not really germane to the lessons that we're giving. Now, after the flood, Noah makes an altar to the Lord and offers all the clean animals that he has to the Lord, one of each. And the Lord restores the covenant and covenantal distinctions. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. And God says that things are going to be different after the flood. He is going to give man much more judicial authority and dominion than he had. First of all, the fear and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky. Apparently it wasn't so before the flood. Before the flood, the righteous man was apparently the prey of all these wild beasts. And you have to remember that that means dinosaurs and things that were pretty scary. They apparently exercised dominion over man. And man was not able to exercise dominion over them. Man didn't eat them and he didn't hunt them. And they weren't afraid. That's changed after the flood. Now what that means typologically is that the wicked ruled over the righteous before the flood. And the righteous were the prey of the wicked. And so now that has changed. 
and man will begin to take dominion over these wild beasts, and God will stick fear and terror into the wild beasts, and we'll begin to have hunters on the earth, which we didn't have before. And then the second thing we find is that from every beast I will require the life of man, and you will be the one to exercise capital punishment. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made men. Now, it says that you will do it against beast or man, which is bec- that's because the analogy between beasts and men. Before the flood, the beasts terrorized humanity. After the flood, humanity is going to get dominion back over the beasts. And it says that I have committed to you the robe of judicial authority so that you will exercise capital punishment. Now, this is addressed to the righteous man. No longer will simply the line of Cain and Lamech who seize the robe, they will not be the only ones who have the sword to kill people with, but now the righteous will have it as well, and you will be able to restrain evil. Now, one of the major themes that comes through here is God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, because the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. In other words, men are evil in their youth. And when God allowed that evil to mature to old age, we get the flood. But what God says now is, man is evil in his youth, but before it has a chance to mature to old age, I'm going to cut it off. I'm going to change it. So that evil never has a chance to mature to old age, Instead, the evil will be restrained. And we see exactly how God does that when Ham tries to steal the robe from Noah. It's helpful to realize, I think, that this happens 1,657 years after the flood. Now, that may not mean a thing to you, but if you thought like a Hebrew you would start to fool with that number and see what it means. I won't even ask you to try because it would take too long for you to run through possibilities. 1,657 is 33 jubilees plus 7 years. A jubilee is 50 years, right? And if you divide 50 into 1,657, you get 33 remainder 7. And 33 plus 7 is 40. And 40 is the normal biblical time for waiting for something. It's the time of testing and waiting. You know that, see, from the 40 years in the wilderness, and Christ's 40 days of temptation, and various 40-day cycles during the flood year, and many other examples that we could look at of 40-day periods of testing and waiting. Now, we'll come to see more about what that means when we look at Abram, but now let's look at Ham. When Noah was born, what did his father Lamech say in Genesis 5? He says, This one shall comfort us in our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Okay? Now, how does that prophecy come to fulfillment? Well, it comes to fulfillment after the flood when we find that Noah who is said to be the master of the ground, plants a vineyard and drinks of the wine and drinks to the point where he goes to sleep and uncovers himself inside of his tent. Now, because of the culture in which we live, 
we instantly tend to condemn Noah for this. The problem is the Bible doesn't condemn him at all. It condemns him for going out and trying to make something bad out of it. What's going on here in terms of the Bible? Well, we've talked about wine here before, and so I'm just briefly going to review it. Psalm 104.15 says that wine makes the heart merry. And in Judges chapter 9, verse 13, wine gladdens the heart of man and God. Now, according to Proverbs 31.4-7, it says, Alcohol is not for kings while they rule, lest they pervert judgment by forgetting the difference between good and evil. But alcohol is for him whose life is bitter and troubled by the curse. Now that's what Lamech had said. This man will give us rest, he will experience rest from the curse. And now alcohol is said in Proverbs 31 to be for the man who is troubled by the curse. The use of alcohol for relaxation is proper when the work is done. The high priest was not to drink on the job. The king is obviously not to drink on the job. But at the great festival in Deuteronomy 14, it says, Take your money and buy wine or strong drink or whatever your soul desires and rejoice in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your household. Now, all we can say about Noah is that the time came for him to take a break. Maybe it's the Sabbath day. It's the time to take the robe off, not to exercise judicial authority for the time being, and to relax with a glass or two of wine. Now, it depends on how you want to read it. Either Noah drank too much and engaged in a momentary indiscretion, or else all the text means is he had enough to where he got sleepy and went to sleep. You can take it whichever way you want. The Bible doesn't condemn Noah, The Bible condemns Ham. That's where we have to look. Now, Ham, it says, the father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, He knew what his youngest son had done to him, and he said, Cursed be Canaan. Now, what's going on here? Let's get the picture very firmly in mind. Where was Noah? Well, he was in the tent, and he uncovered himself in the tent. We all know what a tent is. It's a teepee, right? So you just happen to walk by the door, and you glance in, and there's naked Noah inside. Is that what went on? No, you see, a tent is not a teepee. A tent is a great big place with rooms in it. In the Bible, tents were big. And Ham had to go inside and look around in order to find Noah. The sin here is Ham's invasion of Noah's privacy. He's looking for something and he finds it. He saw Noah's nakedness. Language takes us back to Genesis 3. And then he told his brothers outside. Now that's all that went on. There's nothing here about homosexual relations or any of the other things that commentators try to stick into the text, believe it or not. All there is is the seeing of nakedness and then going and telling the brothers outside. 
Now, what's the problem here, that somehow or other it's wrong ever to see another man without clothing on? Well, that may be somewhat problematic, but that is not the meaning here. What Ham is doing is he's saying, Father's taken the robe off, let's get it. Let's take the robe upon ourselves. We know that for two reasons, that what Ham is doing is trying to seize the robe, just as Adam tried to seize the robe. We really know it for three reasons. One is in the theology of Genesis, there are repeated recapitulations of the fall, and this is one of them. It's obvious from the context. The second way we know it is from the curses and blessings that Noah pronounces. He curses Ham to be a slave, and he blesses the others by saying they'll be enlarged. Now that is in terms of what Ham tried to do, which was seize dominion for himself by taking the robe. The third, the third reason we know that that's what Ham is talking about is that Shem and Japheth take a garment into the tent and cover up their father. Now, that was totally unnecessary. You see, Noah's already covered by the tent, and nobody has any business going into the tent and looking at him. Tents were private. You just didn't go into somebody else's tent in the ancient world any more than people invade your house. What would you think if you came home and somebody was sitting in your living room? Oh, hi, I just came on into your house. You don't do that. And you didn't do it in the ancient world either. You just didn't go into somebody's tent. Ham is 100 years old, over 100 years old. He's old enough to have four children, and he was 100 at the flood, so he's probably about 150 years old. He's not a little boy running inside the house. sees daddy, you know, getting out of the shower. That's not what's going on here. So Shem and Japheth did not need to go inside the tent and cover up their father. He was already covered by the tent. See, there's a larger garment and then there's a smaller garment. And when you go home in the Bible, when you're on the outside, you wear your garment. But when you go home to your wife, then you spread your cloak over you and your wife and you can both be naked underneath the larger garment. See, you find that many times. Spread your cloak over the woman as a way of taking the wife. That's what's going on here, and so there's no need for them to go in and cover up Noah as if they're afraid somebody's going to walk by and see him. So why do they do it? They do it symbolically. It's a symbolic action to say that they uphold his office. Now again, you got to think in terms of biblical symbols, but it's written very carefully here. Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father, and then we're told specifically they turned their faces away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Now that's very carefully written. First of all, they refused to look. Not that there's some problem with happening to see another man, but because in this case, in this context, the seeing involves judgment. They didn't just one of them walk in there with a robe and put it over him, but they both walked in. And they put the robe on their shoulders. Now, that's a strange thing. Why not just hold it in their arms and walk backwards and put it over it? But it says they put it on their shoulders and walk backwards. Why? Because the shoulder in the Bible is a pillar. And all the language about the... Remember the shoulder pads on the high priest? He had the 12 tribes written on him. All the same language is used for those two shoulders on the high priest that are used for the two pillars outside the temple. And the two pillars or the two hands upraised or the two shoulders always stand for two witnesses. 
And here you've got two witnesses, Shem and Japheth, with the garment on their shoulder, and they carry it backwards. Now the pillar upholds the world or upholds the word, and the shoulder upholds the garment. It upholds the office. Remember during the battle with Amalek how Moses had to hold his hands up like this, and as long as he held his hands in the two-witness position, Israel was victorious over Amalek, but Moses eventually got tired because Moses was 80 years old. And his arms went down, and the Israelites began to prevail over the Amalekites. And so two men, Aaron and Hur, stand on either side of him and hold his arms up. And then they're victorious. We don't think this way. It's too bad we don't, because we don't understand the Bible, because we don't think this way. But that's what's going on here. They hold up their father's office. By putting the garment on their shoulders and two of them doing it and walking backwards and refusing to see and refusing to pass judgment, they are upholding their father's office through a symbolic action. Even if Noah has committed an indiscretion here, they are still upholding his office. And if Noah has not committed an indiscretion, but has simply used enough wine to get him put himself to sleep, well, sabbatical-type use, then they're still upholding his office. And that tells you what Ham was not doing. See, Ham's sin didn't consist of going into a locker room and seeing another naked man. Ham's sin did not consist of some homosexual attack on his father that the text is glossing over. You see, people get that by saying, well, the Canaanites are the descendants of Ham, and Sodom and Gomorrah were the capital cities of the Canaanites, and so then they read it all back. It's not there. The sin is in trying to steal the robe of office. And what Ham is saying is the same thing Adam said. Let's get the robe. Now, when Ham wakes up, he curses Canaan's... Uh, when, when Noah wakes up, he curses Ham's youngest son, Canaan. And he says Canaan is going to be a slave of slaves. In other words, we have to do this in order to be just uh, to God and to the curse. But Canaan is like Ham, and Noah knows it. And he says, you're going to see in your son the same type of rebellion that you've manifested against me. And people who are rebellious and people who seize for dominion and seize office and seize glory and honor, they become slaves. Not just slaves, but slaves of slaves. The most low of slaves. People who will not work patiently and let the honor and glory and dominion come to them later on in life, who are not patient. Abraham's faith is preeminently patient faith. We'll have to see that next week. But when the Bible, Genesis is going to continue with this theme through Abram and then to Joseph, who gets robed three times. See, robe is real important. But when we get to Abram, we'll find the distinctive quality of Abram's faith, which makes him our example, is that it's patient faith. And we're in Hebrews 6. Abram's, the true quality of faith is patient faith. Hebrews 6, Hebrews 11. All of these people were patient and they were looking. They didn't seize it. When you seize it and are impatient, that's not true faith. Now that's what Ham has done. And yet, what happens here is what did not happen before the flood. Before the flood, the Canaanites, the people who seized the robe, they ruled the world. 
They were the wild animals that frightened the descendants of Seth. They uh, were the Lamechites who had all this power and privilege and had the big cities. They ruled the world. But now the youthfulness of man's sin is not going to be allowed to mature to full age. God's going to restrain it. He restrains it by giving capital punishment to the righteous. He restrains it by blessing Shem and Japheth and enslaving the wicked. Now that's the principle that's going to begin to come out. Those who seize for dominion and are impatient and don't wait for it become slaves. Those who through patience and faith will inherit, those who have patience and faith will inherit the kingdom. These are principles that you probably are familiar with from the New Testament. I'll give you another example. Why not? We'll just preach on and on and on. But, uh, well, you know the story of Jesus. Jesus gives, when you go to a feast, don't go and sit at the high place, lest the master of the feast come and say, well, we've invited some people more important than you, you'll have to go down lower. And you're humiliated and embarrassed and your nakedness is exposed. Don't do that, says Jesus. When you go to the feast, take the low place so that the master comes and says, hey, come on up here further. These are just basic things. And yet, they're the things that happen in terms of original sin. They're the perennial problem that we all face. And they're the essence of what Satan presented to Jesus. Don't wait for three years till you're resurrected. Give them bread now. Don't wait until you're exalted to God's right hand. Go up to the top of the temple now. Don't wait till God gives you the kingdoms of the world. Take them now. And it's the same temptation we all face in a million different ways every day. Basically, it's impatience, the desire to have it now instead of waiting till God gives it. And it's something that we have to examine each of us individually in terms of you can't examine somebody else because it has to do with inner motives. But we should each of us examine himself, so let's do so. Well, next week, we'll continue with this rambling discourse and look at how these same things come up in the life of Abram and then finally in the life of Joseph. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.